Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Banker Next Door. Uh, today, we're going to be doing a book review on a great book called The Dark Net. And I'll bring this up here, kind of show everybody a little, uh, little shot here of, of the book. I'm a little too close there. Get back, come back down. <laughs> but um, so this episode today is basically going to kick off the first part of a crypto series that I'm going to be running. And the reason why we're going to be examining this book today is because we're going to try to get a little bit better understanding of cryptocurrency. Like what is Bitcoin? Where did Bitcoin come from? Um, in some of the follow-up episodes to this in, you know, this week and in coming weeks, I'm going to talk a lot about, you know, how did, how did crypto start? How did it get to kind of this frenzied, frenzied stage between 2016 and 2022? Uh, what was the the kind of crypto collapse in 2022? Basically started in, I'd say, probably June of 2022, ended up in the fall of 2022 with basically the collapse of FTX in October, November of 2022, and then kind of made its way, kind of that collapse of the crypto market weaved its way into the collapse of uh, the three or four banks that we saw earlier this year in the spring of, of March and April with the collapse of Silvergate Bank, um, Silicon Valley Bank, and then also Signature Bank. Um, so how, like, how does all this tie together? And I think that's where I need people to kind of just be patient and, and kind of see how this all unfolds. Because I promise everyone, after you have a chance to look at all of these series parts together it's gonna it's all gonna come together it's all gonna make a lot of sense at the end but i just need everyone to kind of bear with me at the beginning as we we make our way kind of weave our way through this history as to how did bitcoin come about how did it get so frenzied um how did we have this collapse of the market and then ultimately how did that end up affecting the banking industry and playing a role in all that so first up today we're doing the book review here and I'm just going to bring this in. Actually, I'm going to change that out. Let's go to here we go. OK, so the dark net. Here we have a book and we're going to go down here for a second. OK, so here we go. The dark net is a book book written by Jamie Bartlett. Uh, the book was written in 2015. It was an NPR best book of 2015. Washington Post notable nonfiction book of 2015 or well prized finalist independent book of the year. Uh, New Statesman Book of the Year. So, you know, a, incredible book, uh, won a tremendous amount of accolades. Uh, the book is approximately 240 pages, and the book basically, basically covers the history of the deep web or what we what we know is the dark web. Um, absolutely fascinating book. It really takes you through a wild ride, you know, kind of starting in the early 60s uh, through the development of the Internet and then how the internet uh, morphed into the the dark web. And um, it, just an incredible cast of characters that you kind of come across throughout this book. Um, if anybody knows, um, how would I describe him? Uh, kind of, I, I don't know if he's influencer, but, uh, or journalist, whatever, Tommy Robinson, a guy who's been a very provocative guy on the internet for, for a number of years. Um, he, he makes a cameo appearance in the book, uh, as they go through some of the different things you also run into, you know, you come across Eric Snowden and Julian Assange and surprisingly Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, um, president Joe Biden, uh, makes an appearance with some of the regulations. So, uh, and it just kind of an incredible cast of characters that this book touches as you kind of go through this, this journey in this book. Now let's go down for a second. So 
you know, so some of this book, some of the things that this book tries to answer is like, what is the dark web and how do you access it? And one of the things I wanted to do for everyone is that I wanted to show a, a brief picture here to kind of give a good description of like, well, what exactly is the, the dark web? Well, and you can see here from this picture that 4% of the web is basically the World Wide Web. That's kind of the top part that all of us see. That's that's Google and, and company websites and all the different things that we, we kind of go at and look at every day, you know, social media sites, all this kind of stuff. The largest part of the web is described as the deep web. That is the encrypted information that is not searchable. Such things as like, you know, credit reports, medical records, um, a lot of different files and different research and things that companies keep on file, um, government information, th things like that are, are what makes up that, that giant, enormous 90% of the deep web. And then at the bottom, you have the 6%, which is classified as the dark web. And this would be information that requires a specialty software or configuration to access. Um, and I think what's amazing when you when you look at this is that only 4% of the surface web is really what we see. I mean, 96% of the web, uh, most people really don't see or have access to, which is which again is is kind of fascinating, I think, in and of itself. Uh, OK, so what does this book cover? So. It covers the genesis of the internet and the dark web. We start with the what's called the ARPANET. We move to the USENET, and then we end up at the the internet, the World Wide Web. Uh, we talks about early groups. You know what were their goals? Uh, mainly, they were looking for total and anonymity. Uh, they used the Tor browser. They used encrypted email. Uh, P P GP, uh, and then they also used. They were looking for the creation of digital currencies such as Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of the topics that get covered in the book are trolling, uh, radical and extreme political groups. Uh, we're going to talk about the cypherpunks here in a minute. Uh, child P, I think people can kind of get what that means. I, I, I was very hesitant to write the word because I wasn't sure how uh, some of the platforms uh, would react to that. So I simply referred to it as that. So, but I think everybody understands what that is. Uh, illegal drug sales. Uh, it talks a lot about Silk Road. Uh, which ran from 2010 until 2014, um, uh, which was basically a drug selling website. And Bitcoin comes into that. We'll see that in a little bit. And then we, you had, you know, online sex shows, which basically became the forerunner to OnlyFans. And then you had something that was called the Werther Effect, which was online support groups. Uh, which were dedicated to either eating disorders or uh, suicide, you know, kind of very extreme things in that regard. And then at the end, the book wraps up with a discussion uh, between transhumanists versus anti-technologists, uh, which is a very fascinating uh, conversation in and of itself. I, I, I think in some ways this book was a little ahead of its time by the topics that it covered. Now, uh, a lot of these things we're not really going to cover in depth because what I was really more curious about was the start of the internet and and the origins of Bitcoin and that's and that's really what we're what we're going to get into here. So I just want to get in and just we're just going to, you know, read through a couple um, excerpts on this. So the uh, the dark web, if you will, could only be accessed with a browser called the Onion Router or Tor. Tor began life as a U.S. Naval Research Laboratory project. 
And but today it exists as a non-for-profit organization, partly funded by the U.S. government and various civil civil liberty groups, allowing millions of people around the world to browse the internet anonymously and securely. To put it simply, Tor works by repeatedly encrypting computer activity and routing it via several network nodes or onion routers, in so doing, concealing the origin, destinations, and content of the activity. Users of Tor are untraceable, as are the websites, forms, and blogs that exist as Tor hidden services, which use the same traffic encryption system to cloak their location. Now, um, let's go in here. I'm looking for something. Okay. So, Tor hidden services are not easy to navigate. In many respects, they are similar to websites on the surface net. But they are rarely linked to other sites. The URL addresses uh, are meaningless numbers of numbers and letters. Onion, rather than the more familiar .com or .co.uk, uh, to make matters worse, Tor Hidden Services frequently changes addresses. To help visitors, there are several index pages that list current addresses. In 2013, the most well-known of these index pages was called the Hidden Wiki. The Hidden Wiki looks identical to Wikipedia and lists dozens of the most popular sites in this strange parallel internet. The WikiLeaks cachet, uh, censorship-free blogs, hacker chat forums, and the New York Times Magazine's whistleblower Dropbox are just some of the examples that are on this uh, Hidden Wiki. So, uh, so basically, you have this Tor uh, internet web browser, and in order to access the dark web, you got to go into this uh, Tor hidden services. And then it basically brings up an index page, which then you can then use to drill down on whatever websites that, that you're looking for. Um, for some, the dark net refers to the encrypted world of Tor hidden services where users cannot be traced and cannot be identified. For others, it is those sites not indexed by conventional search engines, an unknowable realm of password protected pages, unlinked websites, and hidden content accessible only to those in the know, sometimes referred to as the deep web. It has also become a catch-all term for the myriad shocking, disturbing, and controversial corners of the net, the realm of imagined criminal and lurking criminals and lurking predators. So, uh, so that's kind of in, in there with the dark net and, and what comes in with tour. Now, just to give you guys a little history about, behind this. So the net, as we know, it started life in the 1960s as a small science project funded and run by the advanced research projects agency, ARPA, uh, a development arm of the U S military. The Pentagon hoped to create an ARPANET of linked computers to help top American academics share data sets and valuable computer space. In 1969, the first network connection was made between two computers in California. It was a network that slowly grew. In, 19, in July 1973, Peter Kirsten, a young professor of computer science at University College London, connected the UK to the ARPANET via the Atlantic seabed phone cables, a job that made Kirsten the first person in the UK online. ARPANET and its successor, the Internet, was built on principles that would allow these academics to work effectively together, a network that was open, decentralized, accessible, and censorship-free. These ideas would, would come to define what the Internet stood for, an unlimited world of people, information, and ideas. Uh, then we move a little bit further uh, along the line. So in late 1992, a group of radical libertarians, and this is important, uh, radical libertarians from California called the Cypherpunks set up an email list to propose and discuss how cyberspace could be used to guarantee personal liberty, privacy, and anonymity. Bell, 
a contributor to the list, believed that if citizens could use the internet to send secret encrypted messages and trade using untraceable currencies, it would be possible to create a functioning market for almost anything. In 1995, he set out his ideas in an essay called Assassination Politics. The internet's precursor, the ARPANET, was until the 1980s the, the uh, preserve of a tiny academic and governmental elite. These ARPANOTs, however, found that they enjoyed chatting as much as exchanging data sets. Within four years of its creation, the ARPANET's talk function, originally designed as a small add-on to the accompany, uh, to accompany the transfer of research, like a post-it note, uh, was responsible for three quarters of all ARPANET traffic. Talk which later morphed into electronic email or email was revolutionary. Sitting at your computer terminal in your department building, you could suddenly communicate with several people at once in real time without ever looking at or speaking to them. The opportunities afforded by this new technology occasionally made a small group of world-class academics behave in strange ways. <laughs> um, so there you have it. So now, now you know how email started. Uh, email started out as part of the ARPANET project and kind of ran through and, and started out running into the 1980s. Um, and then and then we basically get into kind of like the creation of the Usenet. Um, and then we get into kind of, now we start to get into kind of the deeper discussion of Bitcoin. So um, many people were excited by Bitcoin is that it is a form of internet money with potentially far-reaching consequences. A Bitcoin is nothing more than a unique string of numbers. It has no independent value. It is not tied to any real-world currency. Its strength and value come from the fact that people believe in it and use it. Anyone can download a Bitcoin wallet onto their computer, buy Bitcoins with traditional currency from a currency exchange, and use them to buy or sell a growing number of products or services as easily as sending an email. Transactions are secure, fast, and free with no central authority controlling value or supply and no middlemen taking a slice. <laughs> that changed. Um, you don't even have to give your real name to start up an account. No one person or group is in charge of Bitcoin. Everyone is. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 via a public post on an exclusive emailing list for cryptographers. It quickly developed the following and soon became the currency of choice for the online drug market Silk Road. A growing number of people started to exchange Bitcoin for dollars, which pushed its exchange rate from under 0.001 in October 2009 to $100 in April 2013. In October that year, a U.S. Federal Reserve spokesman hinted that Bitcoin might one day become a viable currency. The following month, the value of a single Bitcoin jumped to over $1,000. Millions of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin are now traded every day, uh, which is yeah, even way more than that. More and more commercial outlets are now accepting the currency. Eh, kind of. In some parts of the world, you can live almost entirely on Bitcoin. Eh, eh that might be a little bit of a stretch. Um, let's see here. And then it kind of talks a little bit about like the Bitcoin Foundation. Uh, da, 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 da. So here's an interesting thing. So now we get into uh, a gentleman named Phil Zimmerman. So when Zimmerman finished his software in 1991, he published it all online on a Usenet group, of course, free for anyone who wanted to use it. He called it Pretty Good Privacy or PGP for short. And within weeks, it had been downloaded and shared by thousands of people around the world. Before 
PGP, there was no way for two ordinary people to communicate over long distances without the risk of interception, said Zimmerman in a later interview, not by phone, not by FedEx, not by fax. It remains the most widely used form of email encryption to this day. And the U.S. government, needless to say, wasn't happy. They believe too many people using strong cryptography like PGP would make life a lot harder for security services. It's not necessarily an over-exaggeration. This battle over encryption became known as the Crypto Wars, uh, fought between those who believe citizens should have the right to possess strong cryptography and the government who did not. Um, now here, and here's where we get into kind of the, the political and, uh, kind of the socioeconomic, I'll call it, of part of this. So in May of 1994, uh, a gentleman named Bay published, uh, Cyphernomicon, his manifesto of the cypherpunk worldview on the mailing list. In it, he explained that many of us are explicitly anti-democratic and hope to use encryption to undermine so-called democratic governments of the world. On the whole, the cypherpunks were rugged libertarians who believed that far too many decisions that affected the liberty of the individual were determined by a popular vote of democratic governments. The cypherpunks were advised to read 1984, The Shockwave Rider, True Names, and Atlas Shrugged. Um, so there you have, so in other words, the group of, of individuals that were kind of pushing for this cryptography that were pushing for the creation of things like Tor, uh, so you could browse the internet, uh, you know, anonymously so that you could have PGP to encrypt emails. Uh, the final piece of their puzzle was looking for a cryptocurrency, a, a digital currency that they could basically use to buy and sell things and, and basically create this entire, entire anonymous world. But all of this came out of technologists who were basically very anti-democratic, anti-government people, people that had a severe, uh, like I said, liber you know, libertarians that had a severe kind of if you want to call a streak of liberty running through them, that basically they felt that the government was just encroaching too much uh, upon everything that it was that they were doing. So now we get in as we dig a little deeper here. So, uh, but one thing was still missing. Although the cypherpunks had tried to build a system of anonymous digital payments, they had never quite managed it. The most notable was the cryptography uh, mailing list hosted by Perry Metzger, where many of the original cypherpunks uh, migrated, but it also attracted a new generation who were just as keen to post papers and ideas about how to evade government surveillance and approve individual privacy online. In early 2008, a, a mysterious contributor to the cryptography mailing list called Satoshi Nakamoto posted a message that would change everything. So Tim May and the cypherpunks hadn't invented digital currencies, but they'd seen what they might do. The honor goes to a cryptographer called David Chum. Although he never attended a meeting, his work on anonymous payments was an inspiration for many cypherpunks, including May. The basic principle of a cryptocurrency is that each unit of the currency is a string of unique numbers that users can send to one another online, but strings of numbers can easily copied and spent sent several times over, which makes them value valueless. Chum solved this problem by creating a single centralized ledger, which kept a record of each person's transaction to verify that each unit of currency wasn't in two places at once. He even set up a company in 1990 called DigiCash to realize these plans. 
Uh, Satoshi's post on the cryptography mailing list proposed a new kind of digital cryptocurrency, which he claimed solved this problem by creating a distributed system of verification. In other words, they're talking about blockchain. Um, but you'll see in the next episode, what's interesting is it never once in his post does he ever mention the word blockchain. It's, it's never, never mentioned. So that's kind of a different story, though. Uh, but Finney noticed Satoshi had included something he'd not really seen before, something called a blockchain. Again, so it's coming. So he included it, but he doesn't, he didn't really mention it. So it's good. So um, a quantity of Bitcoin is stored at a Bitcoin address, the key to which is a unique string of letters and numbers that can be kept on a website, desktop, mobile phone, or even a piece of paper. Every time someone sends a Bitcoin as payment, a record of the transaction is stored in something called the blockchain. Transactions are collected into blocks, with each block representing about 10 minutes worth of transactions. The blocks are ordered chronologically, and each includes a digital signature, a hash, of the previous block, which administers the ordering and guarantees that a new block can join the chain only if it starts from where the preceding one finished. A copy of the blockchain record, a record of every single transaction ever made, is maintained by everyone who has installed the Bitcoin software. To ensure everything is running as it should, the blockchains are constantly verified by the computers of everyone else using the software. The upshot of all this is that at any point, the system knows exactly how many Bitcoins I have in my wallet, so they cannot be copied or spent twice. For the first time, ownership can be transferred but never duplicated, and all without the assistance of centrally controlled ledger. It is genius, they, they wrote. Um, the reason Bitcoin is so beloved by libertarians is because it takes control of the money supply away from the state. Satoshi distrusted the global banking system. Remember, so this Bitcoin was first proposed and first came out in late of 2008. What was happening in 2008? The entire world economy was literally melting down. Um, it was melting down and coming to just crashing down and and nobody really figured out what could have what was going to happen there and the government had to step in to to do something to address this so this person satoshi really came this whole idea really came out of nowhere and really came up as an anti-government answer to how can we get away from these governments that are basically ruining our lives so um, he hated the, he hated that bankers and governments held the key to the money supply and could manipulate it to their own ends. He even added an out of out of place line of text into the Genesis block, the very first bit of the blockchain. His transactions with Finney, which read the Times, zero three January two thousand nine, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. So to keep governments and central banks out of it, Satoshi placed a cap on the total number of bitcoins that could ever be produced, which was twenty one million. Um, I think, I think as of this date, we're at like maybe like 13 or 14 million Bitcoins have been mined. I'd have to, I'd have to look that up and check on it. So, um, so yeah, it says in here, like the last Bitcoin is expected to be mined in around 2140. Uh, but Satoshi designed it to be a peer-to-peer -peer encrypted and quasi-anonymous system, which makes linking a Bitcoin transaction to a real-world person very difficult, thereby making collecting taxes and monitoring users extremely awkward. Even though the blockchain records the transaction, it doesn't record who is behind them. These features are precisely what Satoshi had in mind all along. While many of his posts to the cryptography mailing list discussed the technicalities of the new currency, he also made his loyalties clear. In his early posts, Satoshi wrote, 
on the list to Finney that Bitcoin was very attractive to the libertarian viewpoint if we can explain it properly. You will not find a solution to political problems in cryptography, wrote one poster in response. Yes, replied Satoshi, but we can win a major battle in the arms race and gain a new territory of freedom for several years. Um, he was very right about the several years part. Satoshi typed in his last post on the list in late 2010 and like a true cypherpunk promptly disappeared. So, so there you have it, everyone. Like, uh, the dark web is basically the story and in a lot of ways of the founding of the internet and basically how you had the development of the ARPANET, which morphed into the USENET, which then morphed into the internet and how the individuals involved with the founding and creation of the internet and as it evolved uh, really were based principally around this idea of, hey, this is going to be to the good of mankind and this is going to be for everyone. But like all things, um, the government wanted to come in and monitor what was going on. And, you know, the government was very involved and in obviously the founding and development of the internet. The government was also very involved with the creation of Tor. Um, through the onion routers and the government still plays a major part in, in controlling and running that today. Um, so there's, at the end of the day, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad things that came here, but there's, there's also a lot of questions, you know, uh, Satoshi, he made these posts in 2000, late 2008. And then in late, uh, 2010, you know, this person just disappeared today. Astonishingly, this person's true identity is still a mystery. Nobody knows who this person is or why they put this out or, or, you know, maybe, uh, what were all of the motives involved. But again, from, from reading this and understanding it, what you come away with is it, there was a, a group of people at kind of the beginning of the internet who were again, described as a lot of libertarians, who really felt the government was encroaching upon them. And so they wanted to create uh, a lot of systems there that would give a person uh, anonymity while being online, that would make things totally anonymous and secure. And that's why they really uh, kind of morphed over to the dark net where they had the Tor browser, where they had uh, PGP security. Um, and then ultimately where, where you had, uh, digital cryptocurrencies came from, you know, they wanted a, a digital currency that was basically anti-government, a, 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 a currency that could not be tracked, a currency that could not be taxed, um, and a currency that was free for them to use in any way, shape or form, however they wanted to use it. If they wanted to go buy drugs, if they wanted to go buy other things, they could, they could do whatever they want with it, whenever they wanted with it. So. Um, it's a fascinating read there. And, and why this is important to understand this is that as we as we dig down into uh, the crypto landscape, as we as we begin to unfold this. So this this book takes us again through probably about 2014, 2015. The real crypto frenzy didn't kick off until probably about 2016 and then going into 2017. And we're going to kind of get to that point in the uh, in the next chapter here. My next episode is going to be a book review on Michael Lewis's new book called Going Infinite, the story of FTX. Um, but again, this founding, this understanding of, of why this why the the dark net came about, what led to the creation of Bitcoin, Bitcoin coming out and then and the, and the understanding of why it came out and who was pushing it is very critical to understand, therefore, what then followed, what then transpired thereafter. Um, 
be, you know, so it's kind of ironic that uh, Bitcoin started as a, as a very anti-government thing uh, where people wanted more liberty and more freedom to be able to do what they wanted to do. And yet it kind of turned into this more mainstream uh, product. And, and again, and all these people wanted, again, I think what's what's important to understand is, is it the decentralized nature of this. Like they wanted something that was decentralized, that was not in the hands or controlled in any way, shape, form by governments or banks or, you know, any anything along those lines. So I hope you guys enjoyed this, this book again. Oh, let me, let me just get here. My, my rating on this book here. So I rate this book four stars out of five. It is a great, it is a great tale. Um, you, you, you will learn a lot of fascinating things about this book. I mean, I, again, I only scratched on the surface of it because um, there was a lot of topics and a lot of things in here that I really wasn't going to go into as I laid out earlier here in terms of like what the book covers. And, and, and again, that, that just they weren't necessarily uh, prescient to the topic of what I wanted to talk about, which was the Bitcoin and the founding of Bitcoin. But uh, a lot of colorful characters in this book. This book really is a wild ride. It takes you through an, an incredible amount of stuff in here and uh, really gives you a taste uh, for kind of what's going on. I would highly recommend the last chapter is uh, really prescient when it talks about the transhumanist first kind of the the anti-technologists uh, that really is like that that whole conversation was about uh, 10 years ahead of its time because I mean we're literally living all of that right now today uh, with the artificial intelligence the generative a AI and all of the different things that are going on at the moment um, but again rate this book. I rate this book four stars out of five. I hope everybody en enjoyed this initial conversation on the on the, the founding of, of Bitcoin and the genesis of Bitcoin. And I hope people will stick around for the, the next couple installments. So uh, if you liked what you saw today, please give a thumbs up. Uh, please give a like. Please give a subscribe. If you if you have any comments that you'd like to, to leave in there, if you think there's anything I missed or left out, you know, please leave a comment. Let me know. Um, I always enjoy getting back to people and and uh, and, and some of the interesting comments comments that uh, that come in. But uh, but again, hope you liked it and uh, definitely look forward to seeing everybody again real soon. Thanks a lot.